Welcome to the CEO of Destiny podcast, where you will find the tools to fulfill the purpose of your generation and wildly succeed in the marketplace. And now your host, Andre J. Benjamin. Um, we felt a difference even paying off our student loans. Probably we finished paying our student loans off, my wife and I, probably a few years ago. And I remember she said, take a snapshot of that. Keep that. She said, I don't want them to lose it. I know they said it's final, but I need you to keep that on file. I said, wow, it's, it's, it's just crazy. It, you, you don't realize how much time goes by when you edge away at something. And of course, you set your goals and whatnot. But to knock it out, there was a huge sense of relief that something that you've carried for quite some time gets knocked out. And it's it is, and it's, you have to help yourself, though, Andre. You have to help. You have, you have to help yourself by lying to yourself a little bit, being a bit of a Walter Mitty. So what I used to do is, you know, in those days there was no internet, so the credit card would, uh, statement would come in the mail, and my stomach would already be churning over as I'm opening it, trembling hands and all the rest of it, and and I'd see it, and I would have that immediate thought of, oh, how am I ever going to get out of this? And as soon as you have that, like we were saying before, it's how you react to your thoughts that matters. So what I used to do is I used to sit back. I used to close my eyes and I used to imagine myself being debt free. And on the day that my credit card statement comes at its 0.00 balance, I'm going to imagine myself walking to the local liquor store, which is about half a mile up the road, buying a bottle of champagne for cash and sharing it with, with the family, right? Debt free. And, and so as soon as I started doing it, and you feel like a fool at first, because you think, well, how's that going to happen? But I, you could do it and do it and do it. And then all these miracles start showing up. Money starts coming in from all kinds of strange places. People actually giving you money, you know, for birthdays and Christmas because they couldn't think of anything to buy you for, for any presents to buy and stuff like that. Um, I got to think, I got insurance, I got tax back that I'd overpaid that I didn't realize. And all of a sudden money was coming in to help me get debt free. And I didn't really have to work at it myself. I just was more sensible about not using the credit card again. Um, and then that day arrived and it was quite short. Somebody, asked, somebody on the, one of the courses has said this to, as, as well, that it's happened in a miraculously short period of time they never expected. And then when it happened, I did that. And I walked up to the liquor store and I bought a bottle of champagne for cash. And it never, nothing has ever in my life, I can buy a lot of stuff now if I want, but nothing ever felt as, as priceless and beautiful as that moment when I did that. But you have to help yourself by how you think and use your imagination. What, when did you see the, the value of, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the misconceptions of the work week? Because that effectiveness versus busy, busyness and kind of how you realize that almost like the spinning of the wheels with frivolous meetings or things of that nature and just the value. When did you see that? When did you start to understand the value of time, I guess is what I'm getting at. Uh, when, I, when I started my first company, 2003, um, I come out of the corporate world. There's, there was no meetings and I didn't want to call any meetings, but I still had the habit of, you know, you've got to work, right? If you want to get on in life, you've got to, you've got to work all the hours God sends is what I was, you know, educated to, to believe. And, um, and then as a, as a single entrepreneur, as a, as a one-man band with a hub model where everybody's doing the work, really, there wasn't a lot for me to do, but I made the mistake. Break down the, can you break down the hub model a little? Yeah. So, so you know, um, what most people do is they come out of the corporate world and they say, okay, now I'm an entrepreneur. What I need to do is hire a head of sales, a head of marketing, a head of regulatory, a head of manufacturing, a head of distribution, a head of this, a head of human resources, and I need a personal assistant. And, they, and then they go and spend all that money and that's the same, the analogy I use, it's like, it's like buying a new house and then hiring a handyman to live in a spare bedroom in case something goes wrong. Wow. You wouldn't do that. 
but no. you do it in business. Most people do it in business. So you don't need to do any of that. If you're sensible enough to, as, while you're being, while you're working, maybe it's a job you don't enjoy, you don't want to be in right now, but if you're sensible enough to, to think of it as paid training and make sure that you go to all the different functions and try to learn about the key issues and how they integrate with the, with the business. That's what I used to do. I used to make a nuisance of myself and go talk to all of these people and ask them to tell me about their jobs, what they do, what the issues, what frustrates them and all this kind of thing. And, and it was, I, what I realized was I don't have to be an expert in any of those functions. I need enough knowledge to be able to spot issues before they become serious and to see opportunities that otherwise I'd miss. And, and, then, and, I don't ha and I'm not acting as CEO with a vice president of, say, human resources who's filtering out all the bad news for me because they like to be, they want to be on the CEO's good side. That's what happens in corporate, right? So, so you take all of that out, and so it frees you up. But the, the challenge is, because we're educated to be worker, worker, worker bees, I sat at my computer waiting for an email and waiting for my phone to ring. You know, I sat there for hours, and, and you get burned out. And I, I started to think, I must be doing something wrong. The phone's not going. There's not many emails. I must be screwing up. And uh, anyway, things, things went okay. And about, after about six months, um, we needed to go to the UK to take a vacation. And it's, it was a three-week vacation. And um, I didn't tell anyone I was going. And, you know, three weeks is a long time. And I, I, in those days, of course, no, no international cell phone. So when I got back to America, I thought the company's probably completely screwed up, messed up now. And then when I got back, I realized nobody had even noticed I'd gone. The thing had just kept, kept working. And so I was burning myself out because of my, my, my sort of belief on how we should work. So I changed everything completely. And I changed to the five-hour workday. And I now call it the practical magic of the five-hour workday. And I realized that it's much more, and it's a, it's a scientific realization. We cannot concentrate for more than two hours and be effective. And we can't multitask. It's an impossibility. We do what's called context shifting. It just just drive behind somebody who's texting while they're driving and you'll get the you get the feeling um, and so what I, do, what I do is i divide my day into into two hours to a productive period of two hours and i'm an absolutely disciplined on that so even if i'm in the middle it could, I, it could be this could be the two hours and, it, and, and if if it hit the two hour point i would cut off this conversation because i'm absolutely disciplined about stepping away because it's also scientifically showed that when we want to be creative we're best when our brains are tired that's when we're at the most creative. And so you need to be a bit of both in, as an entrepreneur. You need to be the pra pragmatic you know, analyst and, and get stuff done, but you have to be incredibly creative. So you've got to balance it right. So I, I, I do two, two hours of a productive period and then two hours I step away and I'll just go for a walk in the woods or I'll have lunch. In the, you know, when my wife was here, I would have lunch with my wife and, and it'd be a two hour lunch. And then I step back in for another two hour period. And I found that and science backs me up and I've got the science in the books, obviously. Um, that's a very efficient and very productive way of working. But the benefit of it is you also get a balanced life. So, so you know, I, I meet so many entrepreneurs that work 14, 15 hour days and they're good and they're successful, but they're on the third marriage. And, you know, the kids don't recognize them and the dogs don't like them. You know, I mean, I mean what, what, what life is that? So by, by thinking of it differently and using science to, to help you and, and being very disciplined about a five hour workday, you can be much more successful. You'll have bigger, brighter, incredible aha moments because you're deliberately taking relaxation time and your family will still like you. <laughs> so, that matters most is that it's what you value. Um, Dad, do you have any children? No, no. Um, I, my wife couldn't because of her, her illness, unfortunately. Uh, situation, yes. Yeah. Uh, so question for you. When you uh, stepped into, when did you, can you talk a little bit about self-awareness and when you discovered what you were good at and how you made the decision. Because I know some of these in industries, like even you talked about before the call started about your, I'm still learning. 
Um, can you talk about that power of curiosity, but also starting with yourself, self-awareness? When did you figure out what you were good at? Well, I'm not sure that I'm good at anything, to be honest, Andre. Uh, um, I, and I couldn't answer that. Um, I definitely know I'm not very good at, as a handyman because people won't even let me near a toolbox. Um, uh, I did that analysis one time of, okay, I want to start a company. What am I good at? And I can't, couldn't come up with anything because I was a sales manager and, you know, there's skills involved, but they're not, I mean, anyone can learn them. They're not, you don't have to be a genius to be a successful sales manager. Um, you just have to be able to manage a small group of people. And, and so I realized actually that that is one of the secrets to business. If you're able to manage a small group of people, then you can build just about anything. And the, and the reason I came up with that was because when I was, a, when I was a, a, a regional sales manager, I had seven sales representatives. And then when I was a national manager, I had seven regional managers. And then when I was a, a vice president of commercialization, I had seven directors of different things. And it was really just the same thing. I just managed in a, hopefully in a balanced way, in a good way, a small group of people. And, and they themselves had their own groups that they managed. And so I realized pretty, you can pretty much start any company in any industry, as long as, you, as, long as you could know, you've got good intuition to hire the right people and, and you, you, you're, you're a nice enough fella to, or, or girl to, to manage people effectively, the world's your oyster. And that's, that's what I've held to. So, you know, I've, my, my first company, no employees. I started with a couple of hundred dollars. I sold that for 105.5 million. Most people would consider that a success, right? Um, so I started another company and then I combined two companies together and I sold them for 300 million, still no employees. And now I'm, I'm on company five, six, and seven. Um, I'm at company four, I'm in the, in the beginning stages of negotiating an exit on company number four, which will be a billion dollar exit and still no employees. And the funny thing is when, when companies, especially with company number four, uh, you know, some fairly sizable companies are interested and they're doing due diligence, they have an army of 70 people doing due diligence on a company with no employees. I find that hilarious, you know. You're like this so, is irony. I, I, you want this asset that you're gonna acquire and it, it has zero employees, but you're gonna exhaust 70 employees to invest. Why is he doing this with no employees? How's he doing this? That's one of the dilemmas. I have to use a bit of smoke and mirrors so that they don't think it's a, a cowboy outfit, you know. But so, so I, I do, I do change my accent and I, I do pretend that I'm busy, and say, you know, because when they call up and ask for the vice president of regulatory and got some questions for, for, for the vice president, let me patch you through to the senior. <laughs> I have done that. I've done that while sitting on the beach. Um, would you hold please while I patch you through and then I've changed my accent but it's not easy for me to change my accent because they could they can still hear a little bit of English in it it's madness but that's the way that's the way it is so when you uh what would you say are three key ways that you found managing well because it sounds like you're doing more of a collaborative joint venture because you called it the hub model but it seems like because you, you you're relating to them more on their expertise you you're yeah. you're almost outsourcing their brilliance and bringing them in absolutely that's what it is yeah. more um streamlined well, I, can, I need, to, need to get a little new agey in answering that question, Andre, and that's it. That's it. Um, so, so there are periods in, periods in the world of, where energy is a certain way, okay? So, so we've actually gone through a period for, for several hundred years, since the beginning of the first industrial revolution in 1740, where masculine energy, and this isn't a gender conversation, it's true energy. So that what we think of as masculine energy, and it's described as, as flat and linear and very step-by-step. Step. So you can think of runways and freeways and, and, and the, business, the business part of that masculine energy is the hierarchy, the hierarchical structure. All that is passing away through this, what we call today the, the great age of transformation. And we're moving into a more feminine energy, which is fast and spiraling. And you're seeing, you're seeing it on the high street. You're seeing all those, all those uh, businesses that in 1950, the average age of a business was 75 years old. 
Today it's less than 20. In the next few years, it'll be less than 10. And so, so, the, so the key thing here is now to, the, the ability to adapt quickly, to change quickly. And you can't do that in the old hierarchy structure where everyone's response to, a, to an issue is, let's call a meeting. You know, or let's hire somebody to see if to, to figure this out. You have to have your intuition in a big part. Intuition is playing a bigger and bigger part in the decision-making process. And I'm seeing this in everyone I'm working with. So even all of my vendors now, so I have, you know, vendors doing manufacturing and vendors doing regulatory and all this kind of thing. I'm, I'm seeing those companies also start to change. And a lot more female CEOs, which I'm delighted about, is uh, coming, coming to the table. And they've already made the decision. And the thing about the feminine energy, the spiraling, yes, it's more nurturing, Yes, it's more trusting, but it's also totally unforgiving. And if you look back in, I'm a, I'm a history buff. So if you look back in history at all the successful female warriors, they never stopped to pick up their um, injured and they never kept prisoners. They were ruthless. And, and so this feminine energy, it's a ruthless energy. And if you don't get up with it and get caught up with it, you will get left behind. And if you want proof, just go look at your local strip mall. How many companies that were... You know, household names don't exist anymore. Yeah, cities folding left and right. Yep. yep. And you're seeing that on a. Do you ever go back to the UK? Yes. Well, I try to. Uh, UK is in total lockdown. It's like a prison yes, at the moment. I'm staying in, a, in an ideal state versus the the modified world. The world's globally modified right now. But I'm saying before the modifications, you were going home pretty often. No, I just go once a year, but for three weeks. And um, I used to go visit everybody, but then you'd forget to visit somebody, and they'd, they'd take it. You know they get indignant so what we started doing was hiring um hiring a house in london and having people come visit us and have a holiday basically and that worked really well so uh that took the pressure off everyone and and we got tickets to the tennis the wimbledon tennis thing so everybody right. everybody got to watch some tennis and that was the you know even if they didn't like me they'd come down for the tennis <laughs> so. wow the town that you grew up in had much changed it hasn't changed hardly at all and and most of the people i was at school with are still there Wow. Yeah, it's like stuck in time. So that's crazy. So you went back and you're just like, man, it's almost everything, the cadence of life, every bit, everybody's still doing the same. I went, I went back to the house I grew up in in 2000. And, and um, we, we went into that house because we were evicted from above a store in Liverpool. Yeah. And we kind of escaped to the country. And you could do that in those days, hide, hide from the bailiffs in the, in the rural areas. And, and so I grew up in that house. And then um, after my mother died, my father was evicted because it te- we, we found out that the rent hadn't been paid for about seven years, but the owners who were farmers loved my mom enough not to make that an issue because she had cancer. And so they, they kicked my father out and the front door was closed and I went off and into the world, you know, and I came to America in 94. And uh, we had, a, so my sister, brother and I had, had a kind of a reunion in 2000, just because it was a good excuse to do it. And we went back to the house and it was still as it was the day that my father was kicked out. So the, the kitchen table was still set um, for breakfast. The, the bed clothes were still on the bed. You know, his pajamas were still lying on the thing. It was quite, quite bizarre, but that's typical of that area. There's just nothing changed. That, that blew me away when I read that in your book of <laughs> you saying walking in there and you say everything was in the same, that, that like it, Marie it, Celeste, it, it felt like a ghost town. Like you walked in and you're like, everything's exactly like they left. That has to be surreal. It's like, it just was frozen. And, well, and the mailman had kept delivering mail probably for about six months because there was all these final demands that piled up high like a mountain. Crazy. You know. So, so when you uh, are, have, you, you chose the, uh, your, your wife knew at the point, there was a point when you launched your first company that you finally had made a decision and you had had, you talked about the value of quiet time. I spent time in 
prayer and meditation, talking to God daily. Um, so I know the value of it, especially starting it before my kids get up and before my wife gets up, like to beat the day and, and get that time. And it just is, it's a powerful allowing you to clear and to, and to basically hear your, your, your ability to hear is, is tremendous versus the busyness of life. But um, talk about how, when you came home about to start your first business, that what that conversation was with your wife and why you chose to launch into your first business. Well, I, so I came up with this idea and uh, I was walking through, I just had a row with the CEO and I was walking through Minneapolis airport and it just hit me. And this, this, this happens when you meditate. So I was already meditating. Uh, I've been meditating since I was about uh, 17 or 18, because that was one of the habits that was in all of those biographies, even though they didn't call it meditation, they called it different things. But even people like, even people like Henry Ford, he used to go to his old farmhouse, which was dilapidated and sit on an old rocking chair and just contemplate. Same, same sort of thing, you know, you just have to give yourself time and allow the universe to connect with your, you know, billion neurons, your hundred billion neurons. We, you know, most of the time, most of the day, we're, we're, our neurons are screeching to a halt to allow us to do our little digital things, you know, but, but if, you, if you just sit quietly, the neurons can go out to play. So I was already, already doing that. So I had this brilliant idea and I spent on the plane flight home, you know, I did the back of the napkin thing and all, all the rest of it and I was so excited, but then I thought, how am I gonna convince my wife now we just bought this house seven months ago. It's on the water in Florida. It's beautiful. It's got everything you could possibly want. It was at the house of her dreams. How am I going to convince her that not only am I going to start my own company, which is risky, but I'm going to have to move to Seattle to do it. And, um, and it's June and it's raining in Seattle. And, and so I, I planned it out perfectly. I, had, I, I was word by the, time, by the time I got home, I was word perfect. And I opened the front door and she looked at me and she, her intuition, she just read my face and she goes, Oh, you're starting the company. That was it. And I, was, I planned to take her out for dinner and I was, I was going to lead into it. Gen- I was blown away by it. So she says, so when do we go? And I just, you know, I didn't even have to. I, I said, we're going to sell this home. Let's go. Come on. And of course it was, and of course we did. So we, we don't, we only just moved in there. Um, I think we paid 700,000 for it or something like that. This is it back in uh, 2000. And uh, we sold it for nine hundred and fifty thousand seven months later. You know, only just seven. I guess we bought it cheap and didn't realize. Wow. So it all worked out because that two hundred and fifty thousand dollars was priceless to me uh, when I started the company because it took me eighteen months to to raise the money to to get the rights to the product. Um, so it, you know, either it's all meant to be, or I just was absolutely blessed to have a wife with incredible intuition. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Do us a favor. If this was useful in any way for you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews will allow others to easily discover the podcast. If you'd like more information and to receive a free download, rediscover your destiny, go to ceoofdestiny.com. Thanks again and tune in next time.